Welcome to Real World Enterprise Architecture. My name is Reggie. I make my living as an enterprise architect for a multinational corporation. And on this podcast, I discuss the practical ins and outs of enterprise architecture in the real world. In the last episode, I talked about the ways in which enterprise architecture appears to be dying. And I also offered some encouragement, I hope, on how we might think about it differently and perhaps give it a second win. Because, after all, there's still a need for enterprise architecture if it's done right. So, in this episode, I thought it might be good to look back on how we got to where we are. I intended this as a single episode, a short history of enterprise architecture. But as I started putting it together, it became obvious that it would be too long for a single episode. So, this will be a multi-episode series. At least two episodes, maybe even three. We'll just have to wait and see. And if you happen to hear wind howling outside my window, I do apologize. With the first day of spring less than a week away, we're in the middle of a raging winter storm. Anyway, this is part one in the short history of enterprise architecture. Okay, contrary to popular opinion, understanding history cannot keep us from repeating the mistakes of our past. Now, I know that might be a controversial opinion. After all, it's the prevailing opinion on why we should study history, to avoid repeating it. But if I know anything about people, it's that we have a bad habit of repeating past sins and ignoring lessons learned. And I started wondering just why that is. It seems that any time we consider the past, we start to convince ourselves that this time around things will be different. That this time around we won't make the same mistakes. That this time around the conditions are fundamentally different than they've ever been before. And you know what? Many times they are. In fact, most of the time they are. I'll even go as far as to say they always are. Different, I mean. The fact is, future conditions are never the same as past conditions. Not exactly, anyway. And sometimes little differences can have a big impact. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying there aren't some things that are fairly predictable. After all, the sun will rise in the morning, every morning at least, until the solar system goes all wonky. And as long as the solar system continues to be structured in the way it is, and the sun continues to burn, summer in the northern hemisphere will be warmer than winter. We can count on that. We can also count on the fact that some people will be power-hungry or greedy, that wars will be fought over land or religion or ideologies, and that diseases will never be fully eradicated. And there are other things we can count on too, more down-to-earth things, like the fact that technological progress cannot be halted, that properly applied technologies can make us more productive, that information will continue to accumulate at an increasing rate, and the fact that people are just flat, finicky users. But putting too much faith in lessons of the past can be a wee bit problematic, because things are different. So we make new mistakes, and while we do manage to avoid a few of the old mistakes, more often than not, we overcorrect for some mistakes, those we're determined to never, ever make again. So history really can be an unreliable map for navigating the future. So why study the past at all? Well, it turns out that history is very good at explaining how we got to where we are. I realize that's probably an overstatement of the obvious. I mean, of course, the past explains the present, and pretty well, too. But just hang with me for a minute. History is very good at explaining the conditions of the past, in context, with the luxury of hindsight, of course, 
it's good at explaining the actions we've taken in the past. Again, in context and with the luxury of hindsight. And it's good at helping us understand how those things led to a natural progression that resulted in the present state. It also helps us to separate those things that happened for a good reason from those things that were just pure happenstance. And these really are good things to understand because they might help us to know whether to keep doing something the way we're doing it or change it because the conditions that created it and made it an important thing to do have themselves fundamentally changed. So for me, the reason to study history is not to keep from repeating it, but to understand what it can tell us about the present. And that's really why I think it's important to understand the history of enterprise architecture. Like most history, there is a degree of subjectivity associated with the history of enterprise architecture. So take that into consideration. But to my thinking, the history of enterprise architecture starts with the introduction of the computer, which occurred around the middle of the 20th century. Prior to the introduction of the computer, there really wasn't an enterprise alignment problem. Sure, there were enterprises, and many of those enterprises usually involved some sort of machinery. Uh, lots of it, in fact, in the case of a factory. But information was still processed manually. Data was collected manually, and it was integrated manually, and it was analyzed manually, and it was distributed manually. In the Industrial Age, and when I say the Industrial Age, I'm talking about the period between the middle of the 19th century to the middle of the 20th century or something like that. In other words, the period when we saw the most intense rise of the factory, the period prior to the Information Age. In the Industrial Age, all information processing was done manually. During the Industrial Age, the machine changed the nature of work. It changed the nature of how work got done. But the Information Age was different. The computer changed everything. During the industrial age, the machine had changed the way we produce things, the way factories worked. But the arrival of the computer changed all enterprises. In fact, factories and non-factories alike. The computer changed the enterprise as a whole. It changed the way we interact with each other inside the enterprise. The massive paradigm shift was not all that noticeable, at least not at first, when we only had mainframes. But make no mistake, the arrival of the computer into the enterprise would signal a tectonic shift in how the enterprise works, and eventually in the business of the enterprise itself. The arrival of the computer literally created the enterprise alignment problem. And enterprise alignment, more than anything else, is the fundamental problem of enterprise architecture. The history of enterprise architecture and the history of the computer and the enterprise go hand in hand. We really can't understand the history of the enterprise or enterprise architecture without understanding how the computer shaped the enterprise. And we can't understand the current state of enterprise architecture without understanding the interplay between the computer and the enterprise. The history of the computer, as you probably know, goes back to the 19th century with Charles Babbage's mechanical calculating machine. Performing calculations was the primary use for the computer, starting in the 1930s with Alan Turing's universal computing machine, and throughout the 1940s, these computing machines continued to evolve and improve, until the late 1940s when the transistor was invented at Bell Labs, and of course the transistor would change everything about computing. Until the introduction of the transistor, computers were massively large beasts and used primarily for performing calculations generally for scientific or military purposes. 
The transistor, which was invented in 1947, was a game changer for computing. It meant that computers could be smaller and faster and realistically used for general computing tasks. It was the transistor that eventually led to the development of the IBM System 360 mainframe in 1964. The System 360 mainframe targeted business users in addition to scientific users. The mainframe was really the beginning of computing in the enterprise. But let's go back to the mid-1950s for a minute, because something really important happened there. The 1950s saw the creation of the first two real programming languages, that is, higher-level languages that don't require machine-level manipulation of registers. Those two languages are COBOL and FORTRAN. FORTRAN was designed for the scientific and technical community, and in fact, FORTRAN was the very first programming language I learned as an applied mathematician. FORTRAN is rarely used anymore, but there are still a lot of mathematical models and sophisticated algorithms written in FORTRAN, especially in the scientific world. If you look behind a lot of the APIs for mathematical models and algorithms in the sciences, you'll find them powered by FORTRAN code, even today. COBOL, on the other hand, was designed as a general purpose language, actually a business-oriented language, and that's what COBOL actually stands for, Common Business-Oriented Language, COBOL. COBOL predated FORTRAN by about a year or so, and even today it's still on the IEEE list of popular programming languages. Well, that's if you call 43rd popular. But there's still a ton of COBOL in our enterprises. An estimated 220 billion lines of COBOL code is still in use. Something like 43% of banking systems still use COBOL, and probably 95% of the ATM machines in the world where we get our cash from are still powered by COBOL. And that's not all. Many, many enterprises are still wrestling with mainframes today and a significant COBOL codebase. If you've been around any real enterprises at all, and that is any enterprise that goes back 20 years or more, you've probably dealt with mainframes and the legacy COBOL codebase. My point is, COBOL was literally created at the big bang of computer history, and it's still an important consideration today for many enterprise architects. We have a nasty tendency to discard the old in favor of the new, but for the enterprise architect, that's not an option. We have to deal with the old and the new. In fact, I would argue that it's one of the hardest problems enterprise architects have to solve. So how did the mainframe change the enterprise? How did desktop computers and servers change the enterprise? How did virtualization and cloud and mobile change the enterprise? And how might artificial intelligence, machine learning, IoT, automation, and edge computing change the enterprise? How have these things shaped enterprise architecture? And how will they shape the future of enterprise architecture? That's what I want to talk about. Singh, in his 2018 article, The Six Eras of IT, described what he refers to as the six observable eras of information technology. These eras are not just interesting, they provide a good framework for understanding the evolution of information technology in the enterprise, and I would argue the evolution of the enterprise itself and the natural evolution of enterprise architecture. Let's start with the appearance of the mainframe computer in the enterprise, which Singh refers to as the mainframe era. Singh puts that in the 1960s, and I will argue it stretched well into the 1970s, right up until the desktop computer started to make its way into the office. 
During the mainframe era, computers were not accessible by the masses. In fact, most people in the enterprise were largely unaffected by the existence of the mainframe. The mainframe was an expensive corporate asset, and it was used to automate time-consuming manual tasks like corporate accounting, data management, production planning, and managerial reporting. These are all batch jobs which could be identified well ahead of time, and they could be centrally prioritized and scheduled. And that's what corporate IT departments did. They took care of the mainframe, analyzed and prioritized requirements, and they executed those tasks that made the priority cut line. Sound familiar? But in addition to the introduction of the mainframe into the core of the business, there was another force brewing at the time, a movement by a group who called themselves systems men. Thomas Haig described the movement in his 2001 Business History Review article, Inventing Information Systems, the Systems Men in the Computer, 1950 to 1968. Haig describes how a loose group of like-minded thinkers armed with an appreciation for the techniques of operations research and management science, which came out of World War II, saw themselves as the high priests of the enterprise. Again, sound familiar? Now, you have to realize that at the time, there was a strong division between the technical ranks and the executive ranks. And in the 1950s and 60s, when we talk about the technical ranks, we're talking about engineers. The systems men, no kidding, that's how they actually refer to themselves, saw computers as more than data processing and calculating machines. They saw the computer as a tool for centralizing all information related to structuring and running the enterprise. They referred to the computer not as a computer, but as a management information system, the organizing construct around which the entire enterprise should be structured. And the systems men saw themselves as the one group who could rise above the fray of departmental parochialism and executive short-sightedness to design the enterprise. But it didn't work out that way. Sure, enterprises found new ways to use the computer, but departments would continue to focus on their siloed work as they still do today, and executives would continue to focus on the bottom line, because, look, that's what they get paid to do. Even the great visionary CEOs cannot escape the bottom line. The great dream of the systems men would eventually fade as a fad in a doomed hype cycle. But it's important to understand the systems men and the management information system concept they promoted because it was in many ways the birth of enterprise architecture. In some ways, the systems men were way ahead of their time. They did correctly see the future. The computer would eventually become the organizing construct for the enterprise, even though that was still decades away. But in other ways, the systems men were doomed by their own ambition. Like engineers or scientists, the systems men claimed to possess a body of knowledge and techniques that uniquely qualified them to make superior decisions within a particular technical domain. But their task was a lot more difficult than it had been for scientists and engineers, because the domain of systems men was the whole of corporate management itself. The systems men could not accept computers as mere machines to save time and money by automating manual data processing tasks. They saw them as a much broader construct they called Management Information Systems, or MIS, which would allow senior executives to, once and for all, get a handle on the localized control exerted by divisional managers. MIS became the great crystal ball that only systems men understood. 
Though they didn't use these words, the system's men saw themselves as high priests, who alone understood the magic of what the computer was truly capable of, and who answered only to senior executives. They saw themselves as sitting between upper management and middle management. Even more than that, actually, they saw themselves as the great magicians of the information fabric connecting senior executives to the work of the enterprise. The MIS vision was not about using computers to help people in the enterprise. It was about creating a unified information fabric that would allow senior executives, of course, with the help of the great magicians, the systems men in their MIS magic wands, to run the enterprise from the boardroom. This wasn't a movement that was isolated to a single company. By the mid-60s, many companies were publishing eager boasts about ambitious MIS projects under development, putting pressure on their competitors to announce similar programs. These firms included Pillsbury, General Electric, Procter & Gamble, Weyerhaeuser, American Airlines, Lockheed, and Lytton. My, doesn't that sound familiar? What the systems men didn't realize, or maybe they did realize it and just overestimated their own magic wands, was the role of the financial controller in the enterprise. At the end of the day, it's the bottom line that measures the enterprise. We can lament its short-sightedness, and it is often short-sighted, but even to this day, nothing has managed to replace the bottom line as a measure of enterprise effectiveness. Controllers are laser-focused on the bottom line. If anyone is the high priest of the enterprise, it's the controller. And the systems men had picked a fight with the controllers. And there was another problem, a problem as old as time. Most of us know it as overpromise and underdeliver. By the last half of the 1960s, it was becoming obvious that the MIS movement was widespread in theory and nearly absent in practice. It wasn't just the battle the systems men had picked with the corporate controllers that was a problem. The bigger problem with MIS turned out to be the impossibility of building one. Building an MIS depended on every level of management understanding in detail all the information they needed to run the enterprise. Nobody in the enterprise possessed that understanding, and in fact, it's still a problem today. But without that knowledge, without the ability to construct a comprehensive and valid model of how the enterprise uses information, a true management information system was just a pipe dream. MIS, it turns out, was our very first instance of vaporware a term that wouldn't get a name for another two or three decades. Even academic researchers with an interest in modeling techniques began to back away from the idea that a group of staff experts could produce an enormous model of the whole enterprise to be used by senior executives in evaluating major decisions. The fate of management information systems and the systems men who promoted it was basically sealed by 1970. But it didn't go away quietly. It persisted through the 1970s with attempts by systems men and their academic partners to redefine and re-theorize the concept. It wasn't until the mid-1980s that the management information system concept became so tainted that even the academics were forced to abandon it. I would argue that the systems men and their MIS concept were the first attempt at enterprise architecture. It has all the worst attributes of enterprise architecture done badly and its residue permeates a lot of enterprise architecture still today. The MIS concept and the systems men who promoted it stressed centralization and a technocratic systems-based form of management. They promoted tight integration of functions, transfer of power from divisional manager to corporate staff experts armed with MIS, 
and the denigration of intuitive management in favor of formalized models and procedures. The whole MIS movement, promoted by the systems men, was marked by faith in the virtues of bigness, central planning, rationality, and technology to solve all problems. These are the very bones of enterprise architecture we're still dealing with today. That's it for now. Next time I'll pick up with the introduction of the desktop computer into the enterprise. But in the meantime, get out there and have yourself a good day. And remember, people are people and the world is a messy place. So don't be afraid to get a little dirty. <music>